Luke chapter 11. And so I was not here last week. Tommy graciously filled in, and I think he taught from Matthew. Is that correct? Yeah. If you weren't here, obviously you don't know. I, I wasn't here, so I'm asking you. Matthew 4. Okay, okay. Good. So Matthew 4, look, as long as he was in the Bible, that's great. That's perfect. Uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 11. So the, the week before Tommy filled in, uh, we finished chapter 10, which took us a while to get through. But we looked at Mary and Martha, right, and how we, we want to be the combination of both, that we want to serve the Lord, but we also need to understand that we must sit at his feet, right, that we must be poured into, that, you know, we, we must worship him. Uh, we must find rest in Jesus Christ. And, and the rest is so important. And it goes beyond just a physical rest, right? Because think about it. When God created creation in the seven days, in the seven literal days, what did he do on the seventh day? He rested. And so my son or our family was reading Genesis 1, and I asked my son, I'm like, well, why did God rest? Like, did God get tired? No. Like, God didn't get tired, obviously. He was setting forth an example for us, not just physically, but spiritually, and we see that, that correlation in Hebrews chapter 4 where we, where we see the rest that we find in Jesus Christ that we don't have to work for, you know, God's approval and God's love and, and the salvation that we receive, receive from God. There, there's no work that needs to be done. It is all through the work of Jesus Christ, and then we find rest in that. And so we see that happening with, with Mary and Martha, or specifically with Mary who sat at Jesus Jesus' feet and heard his word, right? And that was important, too. We, we talked about how it's important to hear the word of God, that the word of God is what changes us, what transforms us. And if we're not hearing the word of God, if we're not reading the word of God, if we're not partaking in the word of God in any type of way, then our serving is not going to be done to its best of its ability, right? And it's not going to be done with the right heart, the right intent, you know? And we, we, too, will also become like Martha, where we will get jealous of those who aren't serving with us and serving as hard as us and as long as us, you know. And so that's not the type of heart that we should have. Our focus should be on Jesus. So it first starts at sitting at Jesus' feet. So now we come to chapter 11. Starting in verse 1, we are going to see the, you know, the title. If you have one in your Bible, it says the model prayer. We're going to see the, the model prayer that Jesus gives for us as followers of Jesus. And so in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass... As he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And I'm pretty sure a lot of you have this memorized. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us day by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And when I was in high school, my high school coach in baseball, every single game, we got together as a team and we recited this. And it was really cool because I was like, that's awesome that we get to even partake in some type of way with the Bible. But what I came to find out is we would do it every single game, and it kind of just came super re repetitive and, and traditional. And I think as, we, as we're going to study through this, one of the things we're going to see as the disciples come with this wonderful que question to Christ is to, to teach us to pray. Like this, They, they want to learn. 
And Jesus gives them this, this word-by-word breakdown. And, I, and as we're going to look at it, I don't think Jesus is so much giving us a literal thing that we must pray every single time, or it's the only thing that we can pray, but I think it's more so a, a recipe of, of how to pray and, and what we really need to focus on when we come to God and we come to our Father. And so in verse 1 it says, Now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, as we were reading it, you may have caught that it sounded a little bit different than maybe what you have heard before. Did you guys notice that? Even when I was reading it, I thought, that's not how I memorized it. Do you know where else we see a prayer that's very similar to this in the Bible? Do you know where else? Say it again. In, there, it's in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. Turn there really quick. Go a couple books back. Matthew chapter 6. And now this is a, a, a more, I don't know, it's a little more fuller. There's a little more to it. Jesus adds the little things before and after it uh, of how we should pray. Um, and what we have to understand, too, this is, this is two different accounts of the same. This is, this is not two different accounts of the same prayer. It's two different accounts of two different prayers that are nearly identical. And so in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 5, in verses 5 through 7 are things that we don't see similar to here in Luke chapter 11. But Jesus says this. He says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. What's their reward? Quick recognition by people who see them praying in the streets, which is no reward at all because nobody really cares. But he goes on to say, but you, right, you who are not hypocrites, you who do profess that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so Jesus exemplifies this exact thing that he's teaching his disciples, as we see right here in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. Because when they come to ask Jesus to teach them to pray, what is he doing? Or what is he wrapping up doing? Praying, right? In secret, alone, right? He's not doing it to look more holy. He's not doing it to be seen by men, but he's going to the Father, and we have to understand there's an intimacy that happens with that as well, right? It's not to say that we can't pray when other people are around, or that we can't pray corporately, or that we can't pray with other people, but we do have to understand that our relationship with Jesus is a one-on-one relationship, right? That he is uh, God, and we can go to him and pray to him in the secret, And he says, when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. And so if you read that and you think, sometimes I stumble over my words and I I accidentally say the same thing over and over, that's okay, don't worry about that. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about the intent in the heart, right? Saying things over and over again that absolutely mean nothing, just to sound good, just to, again, it's, it's having the thought and the mindset of other people are listening, right? And what we need to understand is when we pray to God, we shouldn't pray knowing that people are listening and, and trying to speak to them through our prayer. 
Have you guys ever done that or heard that? You know, you, how do I explain this? Um, okay, so for instance, like sometimes you could pray with someone who's not a believer. I've seen this happen. And, you're pr- and you start praying to God, and you're, the guy's next to you, and you start sharing the gospel message through your prayer. Has he ever heard that? You ever experienced that? Okay, maybe that's not a good example. Um, just the idea of praying to God and knowing that people are listening, but you say things so that people hear it rather than focusing on God. That's what I'm trying to get at. Because when we pray, we're praying to God, not to other people. Now, if you're praying to God out loud and other people hear, so be it. But our intent is not so that we're trying to talk to other people or to teach them something. That can just happen in a conversation, right? So prayer happens between you and God. We're we're speaking to him. We're going to him, right? And so we need to understand that. And so we're not to use vain repetition. Again, it's all the intent and the heart behind it. He says in verse 8, Therefore do not be like them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. In this manner, therefore, pray. This is where we see the similarity. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And that is one of the points that we're going to look at today. The forgiveness that we receive from God should also be given to those around us. And that is one of the hardest things that we can do. But it can also be one of the easiest things if we allow the Lord to lead us. And so we're going to look through these, this, this model prayer that Jesus gives in verses 2, 3, and 4 of Luke 11. And we're going to look at seven different points, okay? Seven different things that Jesus gives to us when it comes to our prayers. Well, the first thing that we see is that we see Jesus praying. That this was not something that was out of the ordinary. This was an ordinary thing in Jesus' life. It's something that he did every single day, okay? Every single day, Jesus was praying. And Luke tells us not a specific place. Right? He says a certain place. He doesn't name it. He doesn't tell us where Jesus goes. I'm sure Jesus had his spot, right? Like a lot of people do. Uh, you guys ever seen the movie War Room? You know, like the closet. You know, uh, Jesus probably had a certain spot that he went to. And I think that, that Luke gives us this generalization of this certain place so that we don't get so focused on that we have to be in a certain place when it comes to prayer. That we don't have to go in our closet, that we don't have to do it only at church, that we don't have to do it on hallowed grounds, that we can do it anywhere, right? That we can go before God because we have the Spirit of God in us, right? So wherever we go, we have the capability of, of praying to God. So whether you're laying in bed or, you know, I remember one of the times in my life when I was younger that I would pray the most was when I was working at the veterinarian hospital and I was walking dogs to get them to poop. And that was when I would pray. That was like one of the best times that I had the opportunity to pray. Yesterday, give you a good example, we went deep sea fishing. And 80% of the men were brought to their knees because they got sick. And there was nothing else to do but pray, right? And so you're 50, 30 miles off the coast and we can pray, right, while we're fishing. So it can, it can happen anywhere. There's no specific location that, that Luke gives us here. 
Um, because we do see this happening traditionally. You know, you got like the Wailing Wall, uh, synagogues, temples, um, not, you know, necessarily bad things, but when we think that we can only come before God in certain places, we, we lose the wrong perspective. Uh, so Luke leaves this, this spot unnamed to keep this from happening. And so Jesus wraps up his prayer in this certain location. Again, this was a normal practice for Jesus. Uh, it's something that he did often. We see this in the scriptures where it reveals to us that he does this, you know, everywhere, right? Uh, he gets up early to pray. We see this in Mark chapter 1. Uh, he goes to a secluded, secluded place to pray uh, in Matthew 14, Luke 6. Uh, we see him praying with kids in Matthew 19. Uh, he prays with his disciples in Luke 9 and John 17. We see him praying even in public in Matthew chapter 1, John 11. Uh, and then one of the greatest prayers that we see coming from, from Jesus, not that you rank them, but uh, one of the, the, mo- the longest ones that we see is in John chapter 17. And so Jesus does this. It's a normal thing. And so the disciples come. It almost, it's almost as if they, like, let him finish praying. Like, they don't interrupt him, right? Because it says when he sees that one of his disciples came to him, and this is what he says, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. And I think that's a wonderful request because oftentimes they would have, you know, silly disputes and different requests that weren't the greatest, right? Like, let me sit at your right hand, right? Or uh, who's the greatest, you know, on all these different disputes that they had. And, and they actually came to him with, with a, a good request. Teach us to pray, right? Teach us to pray. They could have asked him for anything. Teach us how to, you know, cast out demons. Teach us how to prophesy and teach us how to, uh, I don't know, all these things, these new age things that, that we, we take as greater than studying the word of God and praying. As if the word of God and prayer is some mundane, lifeless thing and has no power to it. But what we come to find out is that prayer and the word of God has the most power of anything. But our flesh overlooks it. But our spirit, as we see leading the disciples, we see that it's a, a thing that's needed and it's a powerful thing. And so they ask for the, his help and to teach them how, actually not even how to pray, but teach us to pray. And so Jesus says in verse 2, and this is what we're going to see, seven points or seven reasons why we should pray. He says to them, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven. The very first thing he says, our Father in heaven. So he refers to God as Father, right? I think we all, we all have a Father, whether he's present or not, or he's your biological Father or not. And then even if we don't even know our Father, we know that we have a heavenly Father, as Jesus exemplifies to us here in verse 2. He says, our Father in heaven, that we go to him when we pray to God, there's this fine balance that needs to be had. And I think that I was trying to explain it here this morning as I was slightly rebuking you guys, that we go to God, right, understanding that he is holy and that he is reverent, right, and that, that we are not worthy of him, right? We are not worthy of him. But at the same time, we can go to him in boldness, Right? We can go to him as a father, as, as simply a, 
a child who knows that they have a loving father and they experience the love of a father, that with anything that happens in their life or anything that they need, instruction, correction, love, a hug, whatever it may be, that they can easily and simply go to their father, right? And that's the same approach that we can have, that Jesus is giving us here, that we can go to, fa- go to God as our father. And the word here, it, it, it's interesting, it, because the most common title given to God is Lord, right? But here, the title that we're given to God is Father because it's a special privilege, right? It's a special privilege. Because one of the things that the misconceptions that we have uh, in the world or within Christianity is that everyone's a child of God, right? We have that misconception that everyone's a child of God. And what Scripture teaches us is that not every single person is a child of God, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't love everyone. He loves everyone, right? He died for the, for, for the whole world. He doesn't want anyone to perish, But to have this connection as a child of God and to call him our father, you must be born again, right, to be able to call him father. And this word father, it it, it implies daddy or papa, right, something that's that's so intimate. And it's, it's even used as the word as Abba, Abba father. We see this happening, Jesus referring to God as this. In John chapter 1 verse 12, it says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So again, to be a child of God, you must be born again. You must be a part of the family. And then when we're a child of God, then obviously he becomes our father. And we can go to him as a good and loving father. But again, there's that fine balance of reverence and holiness. You know, Jesus is not your homeboy type thing, right? You ever seen that shirt or that that picture? You know, like, there is a reverence that we have. In the same respect that you would have towards a father. You know, a loving father, you can go to him, but you also have reverence for him. They go hand in hand. You know, if you love him, you're going to have reverence for him. And so, when an individual places their faith in Jesus Christ, again, they're born again. We are born again. We are adopted into God's family. And Paul speaks of this in Romans 8.15. He says, You have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And then we see this too in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. When it speaks of Jesus coming back, he says, That we might receive the adoption as sons, because you are sons. God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's awesome. So if you're born again, we can go to God as a father. And if you're not born again, you can simply put your faith, if you confess your sins, and you believe in the work of Jesus Christ, you can be born again. And what that means is you are made new, you are given a new heart, and you are received the Holy Spirit of God. And so the second thing we see, so the first one again was that God's our father, right? He is our father in heaven. We can go to him as a father. The second thing we see is Jesus saying, hallowed be your name. Does anybody know what hallow means? Because that's not a word we use in our everyday lingo. Holy, there you go, holy, uh, sanctified, to, to be set apart. Again, it has this, this reverence to it, right? The reverential manner of the name, of God's name. Because God's name, and he has a lot of them, right? It represents who he is. You know, uh, one of them being a father, right? We go to him, we call him father because he is our 
father. And so his name is to be hallowed, to be respected. You know, one of the, the Ten Commandments is, is what in reference to this? Don't do what? Don't take the Lord's name in vain, right? And that's more than just, you know, saying, you know, the different cuss words with his name associated to it. It's putting words in his mouth. It's having a lack of respect for God in his name. And so we're to have reverence for his name. Hallowed be your name. It is set apart. It is, and understand this, when it comes to the name of God, when it comes to the name of Jesus, there is no other name in which man can be saved than by the name of Jesus Christ. No other name. And it has power. We have to understand that. And so with that, we have respect towards God and towards his name. God is holy. God is pure. That's who he is. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, he says, but as he, was, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. So God is our Father in heaven. His name is holy because he is holy. The only things that are holy are always attached or associated or are God, right? Because God is holy. He's the only thing in all of creation, all of the universe that is considered holy, right? And so when we, when, when God calls us to be holy for he is holy, we're not holy because of us. We're holy because of him, right? It all goes back to him. And so especially here with his name specifically, Hallowed be your name. His name is holy and set apart. And he goes on to say, your will be, or your kingdom come. Okay, this is the third point. That he is coming. And that he is also already here through the spirit of God. Right, but we know that Jesus is coming. That his kingdom is coming. And one of the big things that we have to see here when it comes to our prayers to God is that all of this is in is referring to God. Like, for instance, when Jesus prays, you know, that beautiful prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified, he says one huge thing. He says, not my will be done, but what? Your will, specifically speaking to the Father. Your will be done. And so we, we see this correlation as well here when he says, your kingdom come, right? God's kingdom. So when we're praying, it's, the focus is on God because he is the one that is sovereign. He is the one that is holy. He is the one that's the Father. And so we don't pray, my kingdom come, because that's what our flesh would want. That's what our, our heart desires. But, but that's wrong. And, and the things that I want, the things that my ideas and, and the way that I want things mapped out aren't the best. And they're usually horrendous, right? And so when I pray for your kingdom come, for God's kingdom that is the best thing I can pray. Not my kingdom, not somebody else's kingdom, but also giving that, that reverence and understanding that the kingdom is God's, right? That he, it is, he is the king, right? That was our, our theme from last summer. The king is coming, and the king is Jesus Christ. There is no other king. He is the only one. And so there is this desire for the promised kingdom of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to come to earth, and we see this promise actually given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. And through David, we would have the son or the king come and establish this kingdom that would never, ever end. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, it speaks of that one, Jesus Christ. 
And it says, the government will rest on his shoulders, speaking of Jesus, on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness, from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The kingdom that we're looking for and the kingdom to come is the kingdom of Jesus in his kingdom. So when we pray, your kingdom come, and again, it's not, I mean, you, you can pray that literal, those literal words, but the idea is that we pledge our allegiance to Jesus Christ as king and with the expectation that he will come back and establish his kingdom and also to know that if we follow Jesus Christ, if, if we are born again, that he is already physically present with us through the Holy Spirit, right? That the kingdom is established in here already, already through the Holy Spirit, but he's going to come and he's going to set up a literal kingdom. And that's a wonderful thing. So first, he's our father. Second, his name is, is holy, it's hallowed, it's set apart. And three, the kingdom and the focus is, is on Jesus as king, okay, and that he's coming back. And the fourth thing, your will be done. Or, or the third thing that that's, goes along with your kingdom come, your will be done. Now we get into verse 3. Give us day by day our daily bread. And so this is where our prayer kind of shifts to kind of our focus on, on what we need, right? Because there's nothing wrong with going to God for things that we need. I mean, we do this often, right? Like, maybe you're not feeling good, or you have a sick family member, or you're going through a certain situation, and you, you need something. You need God to work, right? Or it may be something that you physically need, right? Like food, for instance. But the idea here is that we trust in God every single day, right? He gives us this idea of a day by day, give us your daily bread. So we need physical food every single day, right? I mean, I don't know about, I do. I don't know about you. I, I try every day to eat, okay? In the same instance, we also see the correlation in reference to bread as the word of God in scripture. And so every day we also need the word of God, right? Because that is what truly satisfies and fills us. But in speaking about the day-by-day -day daily bread, in Jesus's time, it was not like ours. You know, we've got like grocery stores that are full and full of stuff. We've got manufacturing plants. We've got, you know, we've got doomsday preppers who have, and not even just doomsday preppers, you've got people who can be diligent, right? And stock up a lot of food, right? Because a lot of food is being made at this point. I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, you, you can stock it up, right? Uh, and Jesus' day was a daily thing, right? It was like a daily thing they would make enough for that day. And then the next day, the same exact thing. And so the flour mills in his time, they wouldn't make a week's worth of flour. They would make a day's worth of flour. So every day the family would make some bread day by day. Now, when you do that day by day, what does that do to you? That makes you like constantly every single day be dependent upon the person or the corporation or whoever it may be on who's providing the food, correct? If I'm stocked up for three years, I'm not. And we get the same 
correlation and perspective with the Israelites in the book of Genesis when God provides them manna from heaven every single day, right? Do you guys remember that? Are you guys awake? So remember, for six days, he provides every single day manna, and he told them, look, every day, go get enough for that day, don't get more. If they got more, it would spoil. On the sixth day, because he's teaching us about rest and trusting in him, he says on the sixth day, gather double. So that way on the seventh day, you don't have to go out and gather. But then on the eighth day, it would go back to the first day, and you'd have to go get enough for one day again. It's, it's the idea here, the purpose, the, the general principle that we're getting from Jesus is that we trust in him day by day. That we're not to worry about tomorrow. And again, it's, there's nothing wrong with planning, you know, for the future or, you know, planning for something that's happening tomorrow or the next week or praying for something that's happening in the future. But the focus is the dependence upon God every single day. That day by day, he can meet our needs. And God does. I mean, God is faithful to meet our needs. He does it every single day. In Matthew 6, verse 34, it says, Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Sometimes we get so far ahead of ourselves that we forget about today. And we have to, we have to daily focus on God, and he will provide day by day. So to pray, give us this, this day by day, our daily bread, is to place our trust in God as the source that will supply all our needs. But even though he supplies all our needs, doesn't make us into lazy people who don't do anything. Right? I don't know if you've ever met or heard of people that, you know, they just thought, well, God's going to provide, but they don't do anything. And it's like, God has provided two legs and two arms and a brain and, you know, Whatever you need to do to, to work, to make some type of money, to put food on the table, right? He does that. So there, now, I don't say that as in like that, let's say somebody doesn't have two legs and two arms and all that, right? God will provide, right? He will provide. But the idea is for us not to be lazy, right? And knowing and thinking that God's going to provide, well, why should I work? Why should I do anything? Well, God calls us to, Right? That we, through our labor, God can provide our needs. And then we may think and have the, the, the pride and the arrogance to think, well, I'm the one that did all the work. God didn't provide. Well, then, again, that's where we see the pride and the arrogance coming in. And the lack of perspective and knowing that, well, again, God gave you the two arms, the two legs. He gave you the job. He gave you the opportunity. He gave you all these things to do that. And so when we lack the, the reverence and when we lack the, the thankfulness that God provides everything we need, it can be really bad. And so God meets our needs. We see this through labor in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Uh, he said in, in 1 Timothy 5, 8, it talks about if we do not work, you show yourself to be unrighteous, right? If you're unwilling to work in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, you should not be fed. And, and I believe that we're raising up a generation of people who don't like to work, who don't like to get out of bed and do stuff. I literally, we went to, I don't mean to say this, but we went to uh, Taco Bell. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. 
You'll find out sooner or later anyways. I don't have to even name drop them. We went to a fast food restaurant somewhere locally within the, you know, the, the town or the, the state. And uh, we were in line for 30 minutes, literally 30 minutes. Okay, and talk about trying to like be patient. And uh, we got to the front and I told the lady to cancel her order because at that point I'm like, what are they doing to my food, right? Like I don't, I don't wanna put something in my mouth that I don't trust. And uh, she's like, I'm so sorry, you know, we only have one person working. And I'm like, why are you open? How, how can you be open? That shouldn't be even like legal. But this is something that we're seeing in America. I don't know if, if you guys have noticed this, it's everywhere. People do not want to work, and that's not a good thing. Working is good. It's healthy for you. And I don't know if you guys are being taught, you know, consciously or subconsciously, or you're, you're seeing it and you're mimicking, but working and, and waking up and doing what you need to do is a good thing. Whether it's for money or whether it's to get something done or it's to clean, it is a good thing and is a necessary thing that God has given us, and it's a provision that God has given us. Okay, but again, we're, we're, our, our society, our, our nation is trending to just provide for me. I don't want to do anything. You know, I want the government to just send me stimulus checks. That's not healthy. That's not good. Okay, plus we don't have any money to send, but it's a whole other story. So, again, I, in Thessalonians, it says, if you are unwilling to work, you're not eating. Okay, now again, if you're like the person that like, broke their toe on the trip and you can't work or something, well, we're going to feed you because that's an anomaly, right? But if you have the ability to work, then work and you'll be fed. Paul was the example of this, right? He was the type of guy that didn't just go around taking money from church and church and living a luxurious life and then doing a little bit of ministry on the side. The dude put his butt to the plow and he worked and he did ministry 24-7. He was a tent maker, because he didn't want to, people to think that he was taking money from the church and just, you know, being greedy. So he worked his butt off, being a tent maker to provide exactly what he needed to be able to live and to do the ministry as well. A perfect example. But again, Jesus says, give us day by day our daily bread. And he goes on in verse 4, and we see the fifth, the fifth uh, what do I call him? I don't know, the fifth thing, I can't remember. He says, forgive us our sins, for, also, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. So one, as we approach God as our Father and we pray to him, one of the things that is vital and necessary, I think, almost on a daily basis, is that we seek the forgiveness of God. And understand that this is not a forgiveness of salvation, because Jesus exemplifies for us with the disciples that if we've been washed, if, remember he, he washes their feet, and then Peter says, wash my whole body, and he says, you've already been washed. You don't need to be washed again. You don't need to be saved every single day. You only need to be saved once, and that's what happens. But then Jesus says, I, I must wash your feet, right? And if I, don't, if I don't wash your feet, you have no, no part of me. The idea here is that after we're saved, we still do dumb stuff, Right? And so we still need the forgiveness of God. We still need the cleansing of our feet so that we don't lose the intimacy that we have with our God because he's a holy and pure God. But remember that if we go to him 
1 John 1, 9, an amazing verse. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will do that. But sometimes it takes us actually doing that and, and, and confessing those sins to God. You may be thinking, well, doesn't God already, already know? But yeah, he does. Nothing is hidden from him. But sometimes we try to hide things, and if it's hidden, it has a hold on us. And if we don't confess it, it, it won't be forgiven, and, and we, we start to drift from God and the intimacy that we have from God. We can never lose our salvation, but we can lose our intimacy with God. And God is a God who is a relational, I mean, if he wants us to call him Father, it is a relational closeness that we have with God. It's an intimacy that we have with God. And so one of the things we need to do is to seek that forgiveness from God. And remember, no matter what it is, that he forgives us. The Bible promises us because God is faithful to do it. And he never breaks his promise. He's never unfaithful. He will always do it. So if you stumble, if you mess up, whatever it may be, confess your sin and God will forgive it. And he will cleanse you. And he will make you stronger. And he will encourage you. And he will do whatever is possible to walk in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He does that. In Psalm 66, we see this hindrance that we have with God when we don't confess our sins. It says in, in uh, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. And we see that again in the New Testament that, you know, uh, if you're in sin and you pray, it's, it almost, it's to no effect if you don't first focus on your own sin and confess it. And so you may be wondering, well, why aren't things happening? Why? Have, you, have you started with your sin and your confession of sin? And this isn't like some catholic thing to do that you've got to, you know, think of every single thing that you have messed up on. But it's, it's the heart. It's, and, and I believe that the Holy Spirit reveals exactly what you need to confess, that you know. you know. And if you don't know, you can pray that the Lord would reveal those things. David says, he says, search my heart and re- reveal any iniquity in me. You know, and I, th- I think you get to that point after you've confessed everything that you know of, and then God will truly reveal these things like, man, Jeffrey, you're really, you know, you're holding on to bitterness or you're jealous and I'm like, whoa, I, I didn't even know that. But now that he's revealed it to me and, and, and the, the dark is exposed, now God can truly cleanse it. And it's a freeing and wonderful thing. But that's step five. Like, that's the fifth thing, right? Then the sixth thing correlates to that. It comes after that. Because Jesus says this, that we must forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Now, this being indebted is not some type of financial obligation, that I gave you $10 and you owe me $10 and I should just forgive you because, no, pay me the $10. That's not what this is about, okay? It's about sin. Somebody has harmed you, somebody has hurt you. And I'm speaking to a bunch of people that have experienced this at some point in their life. Whether you have been the one to hurt somebody or somebody has done it to you. Now, obviously, there is, you got from this end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum of things that can happen. You know, something that's you know, tiny in scale compared to something that is completely horrendous. And yet, Jesus doesn't tell us that, you know, if it's really, really bad, you don't have to forgive them. He says, look, forgive us our sins. God forgives our sins. 
It says, we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And one of the reasons that, there's many reasons why we need to forgive. I think the main reason why we need to forgive others is because we ourselves have been forgiven when we didn't deserve it. We sinned against a righteous and perfect God. Okay, we're talking about a God, not another human being that's like us, who's also a sinner. We have sinned against him, and yet if he found it in, him, in himself to forgive us, then surely if we have experienced that same forgiveness, which is transformational, then we can also forgive others for anything. And, and I think this is a really hard thing for us to do because I've seen it, I've heard it, I've talked to many people who have gone through things, and they say, yeah, well, I, I, I can, uh, I don't know how they put it, but it's, it's not true forgiveness because there's still hurt, there's still pain, there's still bitterness, there's still something that's attached to it. And I think that if, if we were to truly forgive, that God detaches all of those things from it. And one of the things that we see from not forgiving others is this root of bitterness. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, it says, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. And so when something has not been dealt with properly, it can cause a lot of bitterness, can cause a lot of strife, and it can cause a lot of... Uh, brokenness, whether that's within your own self or within the situation and the people involved. And so we are called to forgive. And we see in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, you guys can read that on your own time. You've probably read it, but it's, it's this story that Jesus gives of this slave being forgiven a lot, and then that slave not being able to forgive, you know, the other person that owed him like a tiny bit of stuff. Um, and I want to read this to you really quick, and I know the parents are coming out. Forgiveness is not about being right or wrong. Forgiveness is not about what's fair or not. Forgiveness is not about whether the other person deserves it or not, because I know that can be our mentality. Oh, they don't, that's not what it's about. You don't forgive someone because they deserve it. You forgive because you have received the forgiveness from Jesus. Jesus forgave you. And what I know is that if a a heart has truly been forgiven, then that heart can truly forgive. And if you don't forgive, the Bible tells us that the Father doesn't forgive us. In Matthew chapter 6, 14 through 15, and I'm going to explain that, it says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What does that mean? That means this. For you not to forgive calls into question whether or not you have received the forgiveness of God. And I'm not saying that it's to be easy. It's going to be hard. But if you cannot forgive, it calls into question whether or not you have been forgiven by God. Your rejection to forgive others is your rejection of God's forgiveness. And it's not that God will not forgive you, but it's that you will not let God forgive you. And so, again, if you have been forgiven, you have the capability of forgiving others. You can. And that's where it takes this time of prayer with God and seeking his word to, to get to that point because it's not going to be easy, especially if it's something that just completely hurt you because we get hurt, right? But through God, his forgiveness of us, we can forgive others. And the last thing, let's end it here. He says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. God does not deliver, God does not uh, cause you to sin. He doesn't put 
you know, things in front of you to, to make you to sin. Uh, temptation sometimes gets misconce- misconstrued with, with uh, solicitation to sin, but this is a, a testing, an approving of knowing that you are capable of overcoming a temptation. God will not eliminate temptations from your life. Do you know this? Yes? Do you know that every temptation that comes your way, that you can overcome it through God? Every single one. I know it, it seems insurmountable and it's unachievable, it, depending on what it is, because sometimes people become addicted to things and, and struggle with things, and it, you can think, there's no way I can do that. Well, yeah, there is no way you can do it, but God, through you, you can. If you are born again, you, are, you have the capability of overcoming. And there's a story of a guy who was having trouble with his diet, and he prayed, God, if it's your will for me to not have donuts, please don't let me uh, find any parking spots in front of Krispy Kreme. But he ended up eating a dozen donuts that day because there was a parking spot right in front after he drove around 12 times in the parking lot. <laughs> so you will face temptations, but sometimes we, we put ourselves in that situation or we prolong it or, you know, whatever it may be. With God, we can overcome. He promises, the, promises us that he will provide a way of escape and that we will be able to endure it. We will be able to endure it. And so, we'll end there today that he does not lead us into temptation to sin, but to test us and to know that if he is testing us to, to seek God, to allow us to endure because he will give us what we need to endure, to overcome it, And once we overcome it and we look back, we not only become thankful, but we become stronger. And not only do we prove our faith to ourselves, but we prove it to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this this morning. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just continue to speak to us as we go throughout our day. Lord, be with all those who are going to the baptism class. If there's anyone in here who is is teetering or on the fence, Lord, I pray that you'd you'd put it in their heart to go. And uh, we just thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.